At the turn of each year, we pause to focus on the future. Our future, our children's future, the future of the church, the future of the kingdom of God, the future of our nation, and of course, the future of the world. Our old covenant reading coming from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes in chapter 9, two verses only, 11 and 12. As the preacher writes to us by inspiration of God, he says this, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. But time and chance happeneth to them all. For man also knoweth not his time, as the fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them. John writing to the churches through the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, the first six verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you in peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower there fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel given to us again this day. Now, in order to exercise and establish his program of salvation, God created time. In order to begin that program, he had to do it in the confines of time. In the confines of time, at a very precise moment within that confines of time, known only to God, God executes all things. And this is what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote to the church at Galatia, when he stated that in the fullness of time, Christ entered into the world. Referring to Christ's incarnation, Paul tells us this in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And so within the framework of History In the framework of time, God planned his salvation program. In fact, it was God, the incarnate Christ, that entered into the parameters of time in order to execute a timeless salvation program. If you think about all of eternity, you think about time created within eternity as a parenthesis in a parameter. The eternal Son of God exited, if you think about it this way, he exited eternity in order to enter into a time-constrained world for the express purpose of bringing his people who were bound by time 
ultimately into a place where there is no time. So again, to repeat, the eternal Son of God exited eternity. He left his abode, he left eternity in order to enter into a time-constrained world for the express purpose of bringing his people who were bound by time ultimately into a place where there is no time. Within the parameters of time, God decrees all things. Even within those parameters, he even decrees the end of time. The first thing that God created even before he created the heaven and the earth was time. In the beginning is a time reference. Revelation 10 and verse 6 points us back to the beginning of time when all things were created to state very clearly that there will be a time when there is no longer any time. In other words, there will be a time when time no longer exists. That confine of time will one day no longer exist. Revelation 10, 5 and 6, notice, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. So there will be a time when there is no time. That parenthesis within the realm of eternity, which exists in the mind of God, will cease to exist. And yet, it is within this time frame of history, as we call it, that all of God's works are executed This is especially true concerning the salvation plan of God. Note some of the language God uses to delineate specific times when a certain things would take place because everything takes place within a precise moment in the confines of time. Notice Genesis 17.21 But my covenant will I establish with Isaac which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. A very precise time. Genesis 18.10 And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life and lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son in a precise moment of time. Genesis 18.14 Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed. Notice, at the time appointed I will return unto thee according to the time of life because there's a time for everything and Sarah shall have a son. Genesis 21.2 for Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him at that precise moment. Jesus made mention of a specific time when he would go to the cross. Notice what he says in John 7 verse 8. Go ye up unto the feast. I go not up yet unto this feast for my time is not yet full come. Because he had to go at a specific time. And when you think about time, it's very mysterious. It's a, it's a mysterious reality because it's a real thing. God created it as a real thing. And since its creation, it is perpetually moving forward except for one event in history where God stopped time to aid Joshua in his battle against the Amorites. And we read this in, in Joshua chapter 10. Beginning verse 12, notice, Then spake Joshua unto the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said, In the sight of Israel's son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ejanon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. 
Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. He stopped time. The only time that time stopped. And on that day, God suspended the activity of the sun and moon because the sun and moon are the timekeepers of time for the advancement of his kingdom work. Solomon explains that there is a very specific time for certain things to be accomplished. And if you've ever been in my council, I would tell you, well, now, brother, sister, perhaps what you're going to do is good, but maybe now is not the time. What you're thinking of doing is good, but maybe now is not the time. So if you have little children, maybe now is not the time to go to Africa on a missionary trip because you have little children. So now is not the time. Why? Because there's a time for everything. And so Solomon tells us this. To everything, not some things, not one thing, not two things, not ten things, but to everything, there is a season and a time to every purpose, not some purposes, not one or two, but every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. And he hath made everything beautiful in his time. Then in verse 17, Solomon says this, I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Notice, he is going to execute his will at a precise moment in time. Now, time is not only something that is simply happening. Time is happening to us. Time is happening to you. Time is happening to me. Time is happening to every individual that breathes on the face of this earth. Solomon explains it this way. He says, In chapter 9, verse 11, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance, notice, it happens to them. Time happens to us. We're not just here living in time, but time is happening to us. And so there are certain times when certain things must be accomplished. Solomon also tells us this in verse 5 of chapter 8, when he says, Whoso keepeth the commandments shall feel no evil thing, and a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. We're to have a, a consciousness and make a conscientious effort to understand time. Note first, there is safety and obedience, according to Ecclesiastes 8.5. In other words, those that keep the commandments of God out of the power of the new birth will be protected from evil, from calamity, from the wrath of God ultimately, but from evil. The second point that Solomon is making concerning a wise man 
is that that man who is able to gather intelligence is able to discern the time in which he lives and because he is wise in discernment, he is able to judge what must be done as a steward of that wisdom during that specific time. We are not to go through our lives lollygagging along saying, gee, I wonder what's going to happen tomorrow because that tomorrow is happening to you today. In verse 6 of that same chapter, Solomon explains the reason why discernment is so important. He says, because to every purpose there is time and judgment. Therefore the misery of man is great upon him. If he is not discerning of the time in which he lives, the misery of man will be upon him because he's not going to know what hit him. Solomon is saying that everything that we deal with throughout our time on earth requires proper judgment. And we are judging it every moment of every day. Whether to do this or to do that or to do the other thing. What to eat, what to wear, what to do this or that. And because those things that we must deal with are usually complex issues, at least those bigger issues, rather than just putting on what color socks in the morning, most of the things we deal with, as far as having judgment, are complicated. It becomes a miserable burden to navigate those complex issues unless we have proper judgment. A proper execution of ethics while making complicated judgments on complicated matters bears heavily upon a wise man that must deal with complicated problems, whether they are his own or someone else's. And this is why Solomon refers to this as a great misery, which is placed upon a man while he is bound by the constraints of time. Because that's what we are. We're bound by that. Now in Haggai's prophecy of condemnation against Israel for not stewarding time properly or productively, God tells them that in spending time building their own houses, they should have been concentrating on building the kingdom of God. Their time at that time was to use their time to build God's kingdom. In fact, the people had convinced themselves that the time that they were given were for themselves. They were given time to build their own houses that the kingdom had not been in need of repair or that they didn't have to at that time build the kingdom because it had not arrived yet. But they were grossly mistaken. And by misappropriating and misprioritizing time, the result, their consequences, was misery. They brought misery upon themselves. Notice Haggai in chapter 1. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, the time is not Come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai unto the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And ye that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood, and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why? saith the Lord of hosts because of mine house that is waste. And ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. Because they misprioritized their time. 
the consequences of Israel's failure to properly understand time was their destruction. Unlike the sons of Issachar, who were able to discern both time and seasons and judgment, these Israelites were ignorant of time and what they were required to do within the framework of their time on earth. And as a result of their self-serving stewardship of time, they came under God's chastisement, while the children of Issachar became commanders in Israel. Notice in First Chronicles chapter 12, and I love this verse, and the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times, to know what Israel should do, because if you understand the time in which you live in, you will know what to do. Who knew what Israel should do, the heads of them were 200, and all their brethren were at their commandment. They were leaders, because they understood the day in which they lived. And so the stewardship of time and the understanding of time and the management of time is of utmost importance because time is happening to us each day, each and every day. Time is deposited into a man's life for the sole purpose of being used for the glory of God and the building of his kingdom, the church of the living Christ, as well as the reorientation of the, of the world to the Father through the Son. And if you look at it, Each day is a gift. Time is a gift. In fact, each day, the sovereign king of the universe invests 86,400 seconds each 24 hours into a man's life. 86,400 seconds. Each second must be used immediately as soon as it's given. Otherwise, it's lost forever. Can't save it up. Can't say, I'm going to put those seconds in a bank, I'm going to use them later. The rub here is that we are responsible for every single second of our life before God to be productive individuals for His kingdom's glory, for the equipping and ministration to His people and the declaration of the gospel. Every second of every day, we are also making decisions on how to spend time. Should I do this? Or should I do that? Or perhaps the other thing. What's important? What's urgent? What's urgent and important? What's not so important? What can I do later? How shall I spend my time? But when you think about time, you think about that time given to you each day, we really have only a very small amount of time to invest directly in kingdom work. And you think about it. How is your day divided? 24 hours divided into three sections. Eight hours, I know for me, I need eight hours sleeping. Can't be very productive there, otherwise I'd be more productive, but I'd probably be sick half the time. And yet, while you sleep, your body is productive because it's healing itself. And yet, you have to sleep eight hours. And then, for some of us, most of us, the normal person, you work eight hours. That's already 16 hours. Which leaves only eight hours to do everything else. Wash, dress, eat, drive to work, drive back to work, drive the kids here, drive the kids there, home educate, brush your teeth, take a shower, whatever it is. Only eight hours. When you whittle it down, your time is gone. As Christians, of course, part of our day is invested in prayer, meditation, reading, teaching our children, worship, fellowship, volunteering in the work of the church, all of which is kingdom work, which is good. But you really don't have a whole lot of time, do you? But now ask the question, as we are now segueing into the future, now ask the question, 
What part of our day is actually wasted? Social media. Unnecessary texting. Chatting. Phone calls. And the 2,000 pound gorilla in the room. Video games. One of the problems we face, one of our fundamental problems, is our understanding of time and how valuable it is. It is not valued as highly as it ought to be. No one is going to say while they're gulping in their last breath on their deathbed, gee, I wish I had more money. I wish I got to the next level of the video game. I wish I had more time. When Hezekiah was on his deathbed, He wept before God. He faced the wall and he wept before God because his day of his death was nigh. And he said, Lord, give me more time that I might serve you. And God did grant him more time. But we don't value time as highly as it ought to be valued. This is painfully obvious with man's addiction to frivolous pursuits which can be a form of idolatry and a propensity toward a slavish mindset. Because whenever we are snared by frivolous pursuits, we are in effect choosing to be slaves rather than to be free to pursue profitable endeavors. So you think about that. The way we value time and the way we use time, we're either declaring our freedom or we're declaring that we're slaves. My good friend and wonderful counselor, Kevin Swanson, sets this forth very clearly in his newest book, The Story of Freedom. Notice what he says. A nation has lost its interest in freedom when the populace gives way to addictions or a idolatrous mindset. From a recent collection of data published on addictions, it appears that most Americans are addicted to some form of destructive device. For example, 28% of young people between the ages of 18 and 24 binge drink five times a month, putting away seven drinks in one sitting. Add to this the 9.2% of Americans who abuse drugs, which trend is on the rise. Considering that there is an additional 66% of young men addicted to pornography, with 10% clinically addictive to computer games, we now begin to get a picture of modern society. Above all, addictive behavior points to problems with slavery in a culture. Now there is a time for entertainment, but only if you can prove that you have been productive and a good steward of time, that you are allowed or should be allowed for that relaxation time. And sometimes, because the pressures of life become so difficult and inundated, we just want to escape. And I get it. And I have a remedy for that, a personal remedy. Whenever I feel like putting on a TV show, listening to music or playing music, that to me is therapy and relaxation but I will not do so until I produce something of worth before that. Then that is my reward. Sort of like when your children are at the dinner table. Mommy, I don't want to eat food. I want ice cream. No, first you eat the food, then you eat the ice cream. Same with time. First you're productive, then you can relax. So there is a time for entertainment. Only if you can prove that you've been productive and a good steward of the time given in other areas. This makes time an economic entity. 
This is why Paul counsels the Ephesians to redeem the time. That's an economic statement. Therefore, time is given as an economic resource for us to invest and not squander. This brings me to the construction of time. In the same way as God is spoken as one and three, so too is time spoken as one and three. For example, when we usually refer to time, we speak of it as as one thing. Now, what time is it? This is referring to the present. What time is it? What time is it right now? What time are we going to leave? This is a reference to the future. Or, what time did you leave? Is a reference to time in the past. And each of these references is speaking of a peculiar, particular time. Past, present, or future. So time is constructed as a trinity. Past, present, and future. As a creation of God, time is deliberately created according to his ontological nature. I believe that time's construct as a trinity is hinting to us as to time's purpose. Christ himself is referred to as the one who was and who is and who is to come. The one past, the one who is present, the one who is to come, future. So he refers to himself in the trinity of time, past, present, and future. John refers to the Lord in Revelation 1-4 in this way. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. Jesus speaks of himself also in this way in Revelation 1.8. I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come the Almighty. Past, present, future. And so in the same way as God is one and three, so is time. The interesting thing about time is that mankind is actually always living in the future. Just think about it. Since the present only exists in a nanosecond, we are constantly moving from the past momentarily in that nanosecond, in a split second of the present into the future. You think about that. How long are you in the present? It's gone already. You're always into the future. You're always living in the next moment. You cannot stop time and say, I will live now in the present. The problem with some people is they're always living in the present and never doing anything for the future. Unlike the Greeks, time is not cyclical but lineal. Time is always moving in a lineal straight line, in a fluid stream of events, because we too are moving lineal in a fluidity of the future. Always moving into the future, never stagnant in the present, and certainly not able to go into the past. History does not repeat itself. While the mistakes of the past might be repeated, coupled with the evil that men do, history is not repetitive. Nor is history cyclical as the Hindu reincarnationists believe. It is lineal. Once the past is past, it is history. It is done and never to be repeated. You can't go back. You know, I love these, these shows, these, these futuristic sci-fi shows where the guy goes into the past and he changes things and it screws everything up in the future. Entertaining, perhaps. Frustrating, no doubt. But that's not the way it is. Man's problem as it relates to time, is that he usually lives in the realm of the nanosecond present instead of cultivating the future. 
But if we are to examine Scripture carefully, we quickly learn that God is very concerned with the future, particularly what the future generations might accomplish or destroy by their stewardship or lack of time. God's entire salvation program and His program for His universal dominion conquest began with the contemplation of the final end. God, in other words, worked backwards. He worked backwards in His plan of redemption. He knew what He wanted to accomplish and then, humanly speaking, He figured out how to get there. It was from His desired end result that God worked backward in order to bring to pass all of His will and all of His decree. To put it in another way, God began with his final vision of a universal righteous construct beginning with his people and worked backward from there. When I speak to students with the college, I ask them, where do you want to wind up? At the end of your academic life, where do you want to be? I'll help you get there. God did the same thing. He knew he wanted to end in this way because that would glorify him ultimately in the best possible way and he worked backward. The only way that this universal righteousness of God's decree could be accomplished if his people learn what their duty is while they are shackled, and I say that very, very clearly, shackled to the restraints of time. Because time can either enslave you or it can redeem you. That's why Paul said, redeem the time. He didn't say, be ensnared by the time. He said, redeem the time. Note how he defines the fundamental reason for the gospel. Notice, in referring to the gospel commission, Paul speaks to the church at Corinth. And the the Corinthians were so divided on so many issues, but he wants to now define the reason of their existence on earth, in time, and in history. Notice what he says, 2 Corinthians 5.18. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us, The ministry of reconciliation. In a nutshell, that's our duty. By the preaching of the gospel, that is our duty. The saints are given, and notice, and hath given to us. It's a gift. He didn't have to give you that gift. He didn't have to give you the the understanding of what it means to reconcile. He didn't have to give you the gospel to be stewarding the gospel. No, it was a gift. As God gave His only Son, so does He give us the gift of reconciliation, that ministry of reconciliation. So the saints are given as a gift of His grace, a ministry of reconciliation to be exercised within the confines of time. You're not going to need it in eternity, but you do need it in the confines of time. And this is the purpose of the receipt of forgiveness to reconcile others by the declaration of the gospel while they live. One of the fundamental purposes of God's people, and you think about God's people, rebellious sinners, haters of God by nature, yet now, having been, as the Apostle Paul puts it, having now been reconciled to the Father by the Son, in order for them to be able to preach the gospel so that they might reconcile not only people who are elect, but also reconcile the members of his body, the church, to one another, especially when there's a breach in that fellowship. Note still another goal of this ministry of reconciliation as it concerns the body of Christ. It is to unify in love one to another, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us. And that's what Paul is all about to the church at Ephesus. So he writes to Timothy and the Ephesians at Ephesus, and he says this, I therefore, the prisoners of the Lord, 
beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, in the confines of time, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, while you're in the confines of time, endeavoring to keep, notice, endeavoring, laboring, struggling, to, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace while you're in the confines of time. And it's not just in the confines of time. It's when you're around people that sometimes are hard to get along with. Sometimes you're hard to get along with. But while you're in the confines of time, Paul is saying, endeavor to keep that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Notice the oneness. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. No longer slaves. No longer slaves to time. No, no longer slaves to men. No longer slaves to addictions. No longer slaves to hatred. No longer slaves to sin and rebellion. He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles. Why would he do that? And he gave some prophets. Why would he do that? And he gave some evangelists. Why would he do that? And some pastors and teachers. Why would he do that? For the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, for the comforting of the body of Christ, until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. I believe the problem with the world today is that the churches don't understand the ministry of the gospel within their own congregation in the confines of time. When God anticipated the distinction between light and darkness, He already had in mind the light of the world which would be injected into the timeline of history. And when God promised to crush the serpent's head by the seed of the woman, He already had envisioned that final victory by the coming of Christ. The prophecies of Psalm 2 and the prophecies of Psalm 110 were all anticipations of the future by a God who functioned in the past and in the present and in the future of time, controlling all things according to His divine will and decree. The entire Old Testament is actually a declaration of God who is always looking forward to the future. Every anticipation of the Old Testament was pointing forward toward the reconciliation of all things beginning with the body of Christ. Each and every one of God's prophets were future thinkers. Always looking forward to the hope of universal reconciliation and redemption that the eschatological Christ would bring into the realm of the present. Jesus proves this in John 8:56 when he told the Pharisees, "Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day." Why? Because he was a future thinker. He saw beyond the confines of his own day. And he saw it. And he was glad. Abraham and all of the people of God were future-oriented men. They lived in the light of God's total victory and it was that knowledge of the future hope that all things would be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ which made him rejoice. We need to be like Abraham. We need to be future thinkers. We have to stop living in the present. We need to be building for the future. God involved himself in the past, anticipating the future, tabernacling with man in the present in order to bring about a future glory that we can work toward also. All right, so then, how do we become future thinkers? 
How do we redeem the time? Building in the now in order to bring about a glorious future for kingdom advancement and stability. Well, first, in order to flourish as members of his body, and that's where everything begins, the world's foundation is the body of Christ. Just think about if the body of Christ did not exist on on the earth. People would just kill each other. So the first thing that we need to do as the pillars and the foundation of the world is we need to love one another. It gets no simpler than that. I know you were perhaps thinking, wow, what, what, a, what an incredible thing is pastor going to say now? Well, they thought that with Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ went to the hill of Olivet, they said, the, the master's going to speak to us. He's going to tell us these incredible things. He's going to bring in the kingdom. And they're all waiting, waiting, waiting. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Huh? What? Blessed are ye who mourn. What? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You see, it's so simple. It's so simple, we want something so hard. It's like the time when The prophet told the man of leprosy, the man wanted to be healed. He said, tell me what to do. I'll do anything. Go wash in the pool. No, I don't want to just wash in the pool. I want to do something really hard. I want to slay dragons. I want to do something really hard. I don't go wash in the pool. It's just so simple. It becomes so difficult because it's so simple. So in order to flourish as members of his body, as pillars of the world, we need to first love one another. It must be a biblical love, a love defined by Scripture, a supportive love, a comforting love, a forgiving love, an encouraging love, an edifying love, a love which bears the burden of the saints. We bear the burden of the brethren. We are our brothers, keepers. John gives us this definition in 1 John 4.10, very simple, here in his love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. And so the question must be raised, how did God show love? Well, by sacrificing Himself so as to reconcile us to Himself. So by sacrificing Himself, He would then reconcile us to Himself. And so we must then add to the list of how to love with the idea of sacrificial love. Bearing the stripes. Those stripes were our stripes. That torture was our torture. The hell that he paid, the wrath of God poured upon him. That was our torture. That was our blood. Sacrificing his blood for us because we could not save ourselves. You know, and I, I'll tell you, reading the scriptures, you, you have to be astonished. You just have to marvel at some of the things that, understanding how wicked man is, and hateful man is against the Christ, and sinful man is against God. I have to marvel at some of the things that I read in Scripture. I have to marvel at some of the passages of Scripture which deal with forgiveness. When I think of Mary Magdalene, a prostitute, who was caught in the very act of wickedness, how Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for the hypocrisy and then tells the woman to go and sin no more. Wait a minute. Didn't she have to do something? Couldn't she wash in the pool? Couldn't she do 20 push-ups at least? Go and sin no more. He didn't tell her to do this thing or that thing. He just said, stop doing what you're doing. He simply told her to repent from any future sins. 
And because she was forgiven much, that woman loved much. I also marvel at the father who received his prodigal son, immediately reconciling him in love when he turned from his ways. He didn't say, now wait a minute, sonny boy. Ah, I'm not so sure you're really sincere. He didn't say that. He slew the fatted calf. He embraced his son. He gave him the robe. He gave him the ring. And his brother, the Pharisee, ah, I don't know about this. I marvel that he took his son at his word. That he was sorrowful. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Because he loved him. He took his word. He loved him. And because he loved him, he trusted that his word was sincere. I also marvel at Joseph. Joseph and Mary, who, finding out that she was with child, knew that he hadn't touched her. Thought that maybe she was a harlot. He sought to protect the integrity of her. He sought to protect her integrity, not willing to destroy her life, but rather willing to put her away privately, secretly, so that she would not be destroyed. And one has to infer that the man really cared for the girl. And despite his hurt and perhaps the feeling of betrayal at the possibility that she had played the harlot with another man, he cared for her. He put her away secretly. Why did he do that? Because he loved her. I also marvel at the list of valiant men who served David throughout his life in chapter 23 of Second Samuel. With all of David's sins, an adulterer, a murderer, a knucklehead in so many different ways, a rebel against the law of God by taking upon himself right away more wives than he was supposed to, by trying to build a dynasty for himself, by numbering the people of Israel and bringing a plague upon the people. After all that he did, they fought for him. They trusted him. Why? Why did they fight for him? Why did they trust him? Because they loved him. They knew who he was deep down inside. They knew who David really was and that they too were mere dust and liable to fall in the same way David did and they fought for him. They gave their lives for him. And the list was incredibly long. Within the body of Christ, within the confines of the body of Christ, within our confines of time, if we do not love one another to the point where we are willing to seek reconciliation, then we cannot say that we love God. It's as clear and simple as that. John is crystal clear. These are not my words, brothers and sisters. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. But he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In order for the kingdom to flourish, the people of God must learn to love one another within the confines of the body of Christ, within the professors of religion, not the heretics, not the pagans, not the miscreants, not the wicked, but within the church of Jesus Christ, those who truly are sincerely looking for the kingdom to come. This means that this is a sacrificial love. We have to sacrifice ourselves for one another. There's no option here. There's no option well, I don't feel like it today. Well, I stub my toe and I can't help so-and-so. I No, no, no. Could you imagine the Lord Christ considering when he went up to that mountain, you wonder what he was thinking about. He was thinking about his crucifixion, was he not? Talking with the Father at the mountaintop. You know, Lord, Father, I'm not so sure I want to do this. This is really a tough call. I'm not so sure. I'm getting a little cold feet or, you know, I really like how everybody is like marveling at my, my, my miracles. I want to hang out a while longer. 
No. He knew what he had to do, and he did it. That required grace. It requires grace upon us to do what God says and be consistent in what God says. Not a start and a stop. Not if I feel like it or I don't feel like it. But consistency. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. In order to sacrifice yourself. We are to be living, according to the Apostle Paul, chapter 12, living sacrifices. What's the problem with living sacrifice? It's always trying to crawl off the altar. Doesn't want to be sacrificed. But in order to do this, we really have to know who we are. And what is it called? A come to Jesus moment. I hate that phrase, but I'm going to use it. Who are you? Really? Who are you? I know what we say to other people who we are, but who are you? We have to ask, who are we? One of the problems with the people of God, well, let me say it with those who think that they are God's elect, is that too many of them have not fully examined their willingness to love, forgive, and reconcile their erring brethren, to sacrifice themselves, their feelings, their their whatever. Like the Pharisees who sought to condemn Mary for her adultery, Jesus effectively told them to take the judgment beam out of their own eye. They failed to take into consideration their own wickedness, resulting in their unwillingness to show mercy to a sorrowing, shame-filled, adulterous woman. Now let me be perfectly clear. When there is no outward remorse over sin, then there cannot be any forgiveness. There can't be any reconciliation. Likewise, whenever there is justification of a sin, or an excuse for a sin, like, the devil made me do it, or... This one made me do it, or that one. No, 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 no. They can't, unless you own it, there cannot be forgiveness. And so there must be discernment. When dealing with sinful situations that often are complex, all of which are presented to us within the confines of time. We never want to be like the Pharisees in the temple declaring his holiness by comparing himself to the publican who was earnestly crying out to be forgiven. It was That man who was justified, not the Pharisee. From that example, we know that this publican had seen his sin. He was sorrowing for it. He was pounding upon his chest because he knew he was a wretched, unrighteous man before God, destined for hell. And he said, Lord, I have nothing. I am nothing. I can do nothing. Please forgive me. That man, that man went back to his house justified. Not the other, but that man. He was ashamed because of it he was forgiven. It was the combination of his emotions and his actions. We could read it in the text. He was showing real remorse. You didn't need to put a magnifying glass on this man. You could see it by his emotions and his actions, which told us that he had actually hated his sin, turned from his sin, in true repentant humility. And so, if we are going to flourish in the confines of time and history, in the future, for the reorientation and reconciliation of the world Godward, we must perfect it first within the walls of the church. Once again, Solomon counsels, to everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under heaven. Because if we do not pursue forgiveness and reconciliation within the confines of the church, and we see sincere repentance. There can never be peace. There can never be unity. There can never be anything. You won't be blessed. 
Congregations like that will never be blessed. And if they're not blessed, then they're hung out to dry or cursed. And without peace, without that love, without that reconciliation, there can be no hope. May God lead us into the future properly, understanding time and judgment so that we may flourish in the ministry of universal reconciliation beginning at home among the body of Christ so that it might extend throughout the world to those whom God has chosen in Christ. And this we shall do as we move ahead into the coming year. God willing. Amen.